millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 47 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, my guest is Dr. Caitlin Barrett, an archaeologist and professor of classics at Cornell University. Her areas of specialization include Mediterranean and Egyptian archaeology, Households and Daily Life, Religion and Ritual, and Interactions Between Egypt and the Greco-Roman World and Antiquity. She is a 2022 National Geographic Explorer and co-director of an archaeological excavation, the Casa della Regina Carolina CRC project at Pompeii. I have also had the immense pleasure of working with Dr. Barrett on creating custom archaeogaming content for use in a couple of her classes. We chatted about how her decision to study Hellenistic Egypt didn't force her to choose between Greece and Egypt, defining the household in ancient times, how we compare ancient religions, and what new historical HBO series she'd like to create. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy. Great. Thank you so much for joining me today. I want to jump right in and ask you, how did you get into classics in the ancient world and archaeology? Well, thanks so much for inviting me to be here and have the conversation. Yeah, I got into the field in what's sort of an untraditional way for a classics professor. All my degrees are in anthropology. Um, they were all archaeology programs. I was always doing the archaeology track within an anthro department. But archaeology is one of those fields that can have many different departmental homes. And so I was doing the four field anthro approach. And I started out with a primary focus on Egypt, really, rather than the Greek or Roman world. So that, that was when I was in college. I thought, okay, I'm going to be an Egyptologist. But then I decided to go to grad school to study Egypt, specifically in the Ptolemaic period. So Egypt, when it was under the rule of this Greek speaking Macedonian dynasty. And that was um, in large part because I was interested in some of the questions that seemed relevant to that period, like issues of cross-cultural contact, imperialism, identity, and power. It was also because I also really liked Greek archaeology. I had a love of the ancient Greek world that dated back to when I was a little kid. I'd taken a lot of courses on both Near Eastern and Greek archaeology in college. And so when I was graduating, I was actually really torn. Do I want to be an Egyptologist? Do I want to be a classicist? And I figured by studying Ptolemaic Egypt, I could maybe have my cake and eat it too a little bit. Then when I was in grad school, I started getting really interested in the international impact of Egyptian culture during the Ptolemaic period. So Greek receptions outside of Egypt of Egyptian ideas, objects, and practices, you know, appropriations, hybridizations, all that sort of thing. So I wound up working on this project on Egyptian iconography or Egyptian-looking iconography on uh, Hellenistic period Delos you know, in the middle of the Cyclades. So that caused me to spend a lot of time in Greece, a lot of it at the American School of Classical Studies in Athens. Then after I graduated, uh, finished my PhD, I had postdocs in a couple of other different sorts of departments. So one was in a history department, one was in a classics department, and then it was from there that I wound up applying to and getting the job 
here in the classics department at Cornell. So um, ultimately I wound up in a classics department and uh, the study of Greco-Roman Egypt is one of those fields that it can often fall through the cracks between disciplines because uh, it's perceived as being on the fringes of both classics and Egyptology. And if you're working on material culture, it's not generally a field that's well represented within anthropological archeology span programs. So sometimes it can, you know, fall through the cracks a little bit, but that part of what really interests me about this line of work is getting to explore the connections between different approaches and different ways of looking at things. For sure. I mean, you carved out like the ideal path. I definitely, when I was in sixth grade, I came home and I told my parents I was going to be an Egyptologist first and then learned about the requirements to go into Egyptology and said, you know, maybe not. That sounds really hard. Not that I couldn't do it, but I was just like, oh, I didn't start early on some of the languages. And then I was like, oh, I don't have access to like half the stuff I would need. So it would have been a bit of a heavier lift and went into classics instead. So, I mean, I, I definitely understand this poll though of you love both ancient Greece and ancient Egypt. And it is really hard to pick. I mean, even for me, it was killing me. And I I can't tell you how many times over the course of my undergrad career, I was like, maybe I should just transfer to like Hopkins and or Brown or something and, you know, go to an Egyptology department. And then something always just sort of told me, no, don't do that. Don't do it. Stick stick with classics. You're, you'll be fine. But when you were struggling to sort of, you know, figure, okay, how do I do both? Can I do both? Did you just already have a fascination with the Hellenistic period because you just found that so interesting? Or was it like you found it interesting, but it maybe wouldn't have been ideally where you would have gone, but because it's the only thing that would let you do both, that's kind of what you were like, okay, whatever. It's not exactly what I like, but I'll, I'll do it because it allows me to do both. I would say it was less that it wasn't exactly what I would like and more that there were so many things that I think I would have been happy pursuing and this felt like it was at the intersection of a lot of them. Some of the theoretical questions that I was interested in, like how do identities and performances of identity change in situations of like unequal power dynamics and imperialism and colonialism or questions of how people interact with each other and try to understand or fail to understand each other's cultures. Um, it seemed like a really good test case for looking at those issues. Um, it also gave me the chance to work at the intersection of some of the ancient cultures that I was most interested in. Um, so that seemed like a win-win. I would say it's a win-win. <laughs> amazing. I mean, look at it. It's, 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 it's amazing. So I definitely got the whole, what are you going to do with that classics major? Oh my goodness. I have plenty of Egyptologist friends who were told the exact same thing. I mean, jobs are scarce. It's hard. So, you know, was there any point, I guess, when you were kind of going through either undergrad or grad school where you were like, oh man, this is going to be hard. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, you know, where, do, where do I fit in? Where do I get picked up? And because the Hellenistic period isn't as popular, some of the other just, just sort of picking one, you know, I'm not really sure what the job market looks like for people who can do both. Maybe, you know, is it, is it better because like you're specialist within specialties or is it harder? Cause there's just like not many people doing it. I would say that I basically just felt sheer terror at every stage of the process about, I knew what I wanted to do. I was constantly anxious about whether I had done something very foolish by not leaving myself any backup options. Because especially when I was finishing up grad school, I was thinking, I really don't have a lot of actionable skills beyond this highly specialized thing, which I think in retrospect is not entirely true. There are concrete skills that people build in grad school that will, would apply to many different careers, but I didn't fully appreciate it, that, that at the time I thought, oh, crap, I've sunk all my eggs into this basket. This better work. Um, and I got lucky, you know, like I, I tried, I, I've always tried to work hard, but that's not enough in this field because there are so few jobs, no matter how hard you work or, you know, how good your stuff is in whoever's eyes. You also have to be fortunate. You have to have the right opportunity come along at the right time and department have an opening for somebody who does what you do and all the stars align. And, you know, I think now there's a little bit more awareness that we need to build into our pedagogy, both preparing people for the 
horrible uncertainty and unpredictability of, of that job market. I mean, just really the sheer unfairness of it, because there are so many excellent people and there are not enough academic jobs for them. And also training in alternative careers, which I got none of. Like, I had no training in alternative careers. I've seen over the past 10 years much more of an effort to build that into graduate pedagogy, and I think that's really important. Yeah, for sure. No, there's definitely, I've, I've seen the change slowly in, in some of like my friends who I went through undergrad with and seeing them now kind of in grad school, seeing some of the opportunities they have available to them. I'm like, oh, wait, that's a, that, that's a thing. Oh, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously opportunities are few and far between. And, you know, just in terms of just the, the sheer volume, I mean, most of them seem to also be restricted to, uh, a few select institutions as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, was there ever concern that the, you know, because there's so few and far between, like you wouldn't get some of these opportunities or not at all? Yeah. I think, I think everybody feels that. And in recent years, have all fully become more aware of a lot of the structural inequities that are built into the process where not only is there this great scarcity of opportunity, but we really need to work hard to root out institutional and structural biases in who gets access to those opportunities. And that is, I think, really the biggest challenge that the field of classics faces right now. We need to make this a more equitable field. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Now, I just, I, I'm so curious. And so I don't know if you can tell, but I'm like probably excited to get into the more specific stuff of your work. I, because I saw somewhere, read somewhere, maybe I even talked to someone who said either way, no matter how I found it out, I was fascinated by your research on ancient Greek, like religion, basically. So can you just like talk a bit, a bit about, you know, where does this fascination come from and, Mm -hmm. You know, because there's so many different huge areas within ancient studies to, to go into. And so I just like hearing a little bit about how people find their own, you know, specific fascinations. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I guess ultimately it's because I'm interested in people. I want to understand what, I mean, to the extent possible, what people's experiences were like and what their understanding of the world was like in antiquity. And of course, on some level, that's an impossibility. We can never really get into ancient people's heads. But I find religion, the study of religion and ritual to be one way of approaching what people valued, what they understood as the nature of their universe. What did they think of as the powers that populated that universe, their relationship to those powers, and what did they want to do about it? And I I find it, because I'm interested in households and household religion, One of the topics that I want to explore is the way that regular people could use religion or ritual practices as a way to have agency in their lives. So that, okay, there's a lot in life you can't control, especially if you're not at the top of the social hierarchy, but closer to um, the the lower rungs of it. But you can use um, your relationship with gods or daimons or or all the other uncanny beings of the Greco-Roman universe to try to change your your fate, change your uh, experience. So I'm interested in also how we think about religion. It's one of those, those concepts that we think we intuitively understand, like, oh, sure, Sure, I know what religion is, but then the harder you try to define it, the slipperier it gets. And there doesn't seem to be really an ancient term that encompasses everything that we use the word religion in English to mean. I mean, even though it's a word that has that has Latin roots, Latin religio means something a little bit different. And, and in Greek, there are all these words for talking about different levels of like sacredness, right? Or talking about the gods and the divine, but a concept that describes a uh, self-contained religious community that sets itself in opposition to other religious communities and whose membership is contingent on not being part of one of those other religious communities. There are a lot of ways that that's a very modern concept. So one of the 
challenges, but I think also exciting things about working on this subject is trying to explore differences, ways that ways that our own concepts are are culturally bounded and specific to our way of looking at things. Yeah, because another related concept would be magic. And there we do have an ancient, you know, emic within the culture we're talking about term magia, and it's ancestral to the English word magic, but it doesn't mean exactly the same thing either. In in fact, it's hard to come up with any one single universally applicable sentence about what magic meant to the ancient Greeks either, because it seems to have been a term intended to stigmatize, a term of polemic, rather than an objective description of a clearly identifiable set of practices. So that means that the study of what we call magic or what they called magic gives us a way to look at the entanglement of um, ritual with uh, systems of power. We can look at how people used ritual to create social or political hierarchies, to maintain them, and also to subvert them. So I find that to be fairly endlessly interesting, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I wish I could have focused on it more when I was in school, but obviously we just didn't have time. But one thing that I've always found really interesting, though, is so I don't know too much about household Greek religion, but I know that the Romans had those household spirits, the household shrines, the lars, the family spirits and that would kind of just sort of stay and, and, and be there. Was there something similar for, for the Greeks? Because I really I you know, this is something I'd love to learn more about whether it was a distinctly Roman thing because of the, the Roman fascination and focus on like the family to have uh, household sort of relics and shrines but um was there something similar in, in ancient greece I, mean, I guess yes and no like there are definitely deities that are associated with the household there are certain forms of zeus that we see mentioned in in texts as protective of the house and its inhabitants so this is actually kind of interesting we have we have textual evidence that herms were supposed to be set up at people's doorways and you know hermes and the herm is a, a sort of protector of liminal space that makes sense but it's been incredibly difficult to find archaeological confirmation of that practice. We don't really seem to have built herms next to archaeologically identifiable houses. But what we do have is lots of tiny little terracotta figurines of herms. And um, one of my first, uh, my dissertations and my first big research project was about terracotta figurines. And I do find those to be a really promising, although also complex source of evidence for popular in household practices. So it's it's possible that household herms might have more often been terracotta than some sort of monumental stone or even wood construction. The hearth appears to have been a, a religiously charged place that was important to a lot of family ceremonies. But there, again, uh, a lot of Greek houses don't seem to have built hearths. They do in some regions, but not others. And people like Barbara Tsikirgis have written about how portable braziers were probably the form that a lot of people's hearths took. So rather than looking for something monumental and fixed and always looking the same in every scenario, we should probably be thinking in terms of flexibility and people making do with what they have available in the moment and in the space. Does seem to have been a lot of regional variation too. So what's Greek household religion? Well, I guess it partly depends on what you consider to be the Greek world. And I work particularly in the Hellenistic period. So the Greek world then is pretty big. And so I think you have to consider, you know, what's household religion like in Ptolemaic Egypt? What is it actually the dividing line between a quote unquote Greek household cult and an Egyptian one or a Babylonian one or a Bactrian one? And for a lot of the folks involved, certainly in the case of Egypt, we have evidence that many people would code switch between identities, that they would be both Egyptian and Greek, and they might have an Egyptian name and a Greek name, at least if they came from certain kinds of milieus. So, I mean, there are real questions about who would have actually been privileged enough to have that kind of flexibility, who would have had the access to the Greek education that could enable an Egyptian to claim um, an identity as Hellene. But for at least uh, certain individuals, the construction of these identities might have been a little different from how we might popularly imagine it to be today. Wow. I mean, I think that's all fascinating. I will just say I got a little too excited. <laughs> portable hearths. Cause I was like, you know, I have 
I have friends who camp and, you know, I see them taking their little, you know, portable, like kerosene stuff. And I'm always like, what do you eat when you're like camping in the mountains? You just like build a campfire and they're like, no, no, it's, you know, it's illegal. You can't just like build fires and, you know, forest preserves. They're like, no, we have our little like portable stoves. So I got that like image of like a modern portable stove, which obviously they did not have, but that's just where my mind went when you're like, yeah, they had portable hearths. So I got like altogether too excited about that. But also it got me thinking of, so just this last, this past weekend, I was traveling a bit uh, around Greece and a friend and I went to the palace of Nestor in Pylos. Mm. In there, we saw just these huge hearths, just like seeing the, the size of the, the hearth pit, you know, I'm like, oh my God, this was, this was huge. This was amazing. This was definitely like in the center of the throne room and everything. So kind of seeing that and no taking a mental note of oh this must have been important if it's that big and there are this many here I'm curious as now I have an expert here to you know help me ponder this but in terms of the hearth the home the household Mm -hmm. you know if you had to just use your expert opinion I mean all the gods are important obviously but like is there one or maybe two that are like extra important for you know, Greek domestic life. I mean, is there one that's even more important to pray to? I mean, you know, I am always fascinated by these ideas of, oh, well, I was going to, you know, how everything has its own purpose. So, you know, if you want to go to war, you pray to Aries. If you want to do blah, 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 you pray to this person. So just for like, Mm -hmm. you know, well-being of your home, you know, is that Hestia? Is it, you know, somebody else? (laughs) Well, I guess it depends what exactly you're doing in the home. I mean, Hestia, for sure. Um, Zeus seems to have been particularly important in protecting people's possessions in the house, which actually, side note, kind of brings up the question of how we define household cult. Is it the religion of the family or the household? And family and household don't have to be the same thing, of course. Is it any kind of ritual practice that's about protecting the people who constitute a household? Or is it about the stuff, the physical house and possessions, there seem to have been slightly different uh, practices and gods associated with each. So Zeus seems to have been particularly good for protecting his stuff. If you are interested in certain other kinds of ritual, the sort of things that might be historically classified in scholarship as magic, back to magic, but that could be done in the household too. And people could do all kinds of magical rituals some viewed as socially appropriate, some viewed as socially stigmatized in the house. So if you look at, say, the Greek and Demotic magical papyri, which come from Roman period Egypt, but there are certain parallels to magical practices that are attested elsewhere and in some earlier sources too, you'll find evidence for, say, uh, erotic curses that could sometimes have to do with the household. So uh, if you wanted to compel somebody to become passionately attracted to you, the rights for that would sometimes take place in the house. And we have archaeological possible confirmation of this. Um, Andrew Wilburn has published this clay figurine from Karanis that seems to come from an erotic binding spell. It's been pierced by pins and it was buried underneath the house. So does that constitute a sort of household cult? It doesn't seem like it's it's promoting the well-being of the family. In fact, since the relationships desired are often illicit ones, you could see it as undermining what a lot of people at the time would have seen as the well-being of the family. But it does seem to sometimes have a, a house location or people would wear amulets on their body body frequently to hopefully guarantee their health and protection from evil forces like the evil eye. This is most clearly attested in the Roman period. We've got tons and tons of quote-unquote magical amulets from all over the Roman Empire, but it seems to be an older practice too. What would you see the relationship of that to household cult as being? Because if it's something you're wearing on your person, it's, it's personal cult really, but it would insofar as you spend a lot of time at home, also have a localization within the home. So for the project I'm working on, on the archaeology of Greek household religion and the materiality of Greek household religion, really, one of the questions I'm trying to explore is, well, what is the household? And I don't think there's one single perfect uh, sentence that will sum up like, this is household cult and this is not, but that rather we should be thinking about ritual practices as having a whole series of nested contexts. So I think there's a lot to be said for taking a multi-scalar approach. 
Yeah, no, I think that's awesome. I wanted to just ask that also because I have like a personal thing where I um, have taken it upon myself to get justice for Hestia because I know that she's, it was so weird. I was like, you know, she was an Olympian and then she was kicked off because they had to make room for Dionysus. But then they're like, oh, no, no, you could stay here because you are important. Like the whole, you know, sweetie, you can guard the hearth and Olympus, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And so I just kind of, I remember reading her that and thinking, she deserves justice. Why are there no epic myths about Hestia anymore? This is so sad. This is so boring. And I'm just like, you know, knowing what what I do of ancient Greece and you pose a lot of really excellent questions that I really never thought about. I mean, you, what is the family? How do we define it? It can be defined in so many different ways. But I guess I would personally, from my own experience and, in, in, you know, what I learned from my classes was they always seem to have such a big thing about, you know, are you a blood citizen? Do you belong here? You know, you have to have your father's name, you know, it, it's really centered around sort of bloodlines and, and legacy of, you know, what, what did your father do since, you know, women just <laughs> weren't really uh, uh, factored in there. So do you feel that Hestia, like, does she still get, I mean, the, the same amount of level of importance or respect, I guess, from whatever we want to call households or like, does she actually have, I'd call it just bad luck. You know, I just, I see her plight and I'm like, poor thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess important in whose eyes and in what context, you know, uh, we don't tend to, in, in the textual tradition that survives, given that this is mostly a matter of literary sources composed by well-off men, we're not getting the perspective of, say, young mother or elderly woman or a young child. And different people within the household could have had very different um, notions of what the most important deities in their lives were, the most important practices. And uh, Chris Ferroni has this article about oikos versus genos cult. So like the rituals of the household versus the rituals of basically the family line. And he sees different roles for men and women in, in each. So, I mean, who's the most important God? I feel like it could really depend a lot on who you're asking. And then another figure who's important in household cult, and I guess back to magic again, is Hecate. And these little figures of Hecate are often found in household contexts. And she's also, uh, in addition to being associated with, with magic, she's a protector of childbirth, among other things. And she's the goddess of the crossroads, liminal spaces again, sort of like the herms at the doorways. You need to protect the moments and places of transition. Those are the dangerous times, transition from not yet born to born or alive to dead or transition between life stages. Okay. So it's, it's interesting because that made me think of Janus for the Romans, you know? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know why, but just like this picture of Janus and his two faces, one facing forward, one facing back. I was like, well, you know, doorways. Uh... So so now I have to ask, though, since, I mean, obviously it's very apparent. You love the magic aspect. I love the magic aspect. So, <laughs> you know, magic and, 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 and religion kind of go hand in hand in the Asian world. So I just, mm -hmm. I'm very curious. Were you at all really super attracted to the Amarna period in Egypt? Because I feel like everyone was. Oh, uh, sure. Yeah, I mean, it, when, it, when you take a survey of Egyptian history. It's uh, one of the most memorable uh, episodes, but also as somebody who's interested in households, if you want to look at domestic context in Egypt, Amarna is one of the main places for a, a settlement that's been excavated to a great extent. So yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you know, it, it's funny that it, you can pick up on, I keep on harping on the magic stuff. Right before our conversation, I was actually just working on the syllabus for a course I'm teaching this semester, magic and witchcraft in the Greco-Roman world. So I think that's part of why I have it on the brain. <laughs> that's not fair. I want to take all these amazing sounding classes. That's not fair. Oh, well, if you're listening and if you go to Cornell, go take this class for me and then tell me how it is. <laughs> Well, if we're talking about the domestic, I mean, so so what's your take on Akhenaten portrayal of these like domestic families, sort of intimate scenes mm -hmm. that you don't mm -hmm. see really in any other period? I mean, as someone who, you know, dip both sort of feed in 
you know, ancient Greece and ancient Egypt. So I'm like, yeah, I mean, obviously comparing Greece and Egypt is hard, but as one of the few people who has been able to do that, you know, is it like weird? Is it, is it like, oh my gosh, wait, this is fantastic. I get to see something different or is it just like too different? You can't really compare them. Yeah, well, I mean, with what's going on with Akhenaten's iconography, it's sort of like faulty towers, like don't mention the war. I've been persuaded by the account of what Akhenaten's doing that has been published by uh, Darnell and Manassas some years ago, where he's not really a, a monotheist, but a henotheist, and that he wants to effectively go back to a time before the created world and all of the the divisions and developments that happened since the primordial time of creation. So if you see him as a sort of solarized creator figure, then daughters can be understood on, on some level as representing aspects of that personality. So like John Darnell sees them as, as representing the rays of the sun. And I, you know, I think, I think that is plausible. Because there's a lot that's new and unusual about Akhenaten's iconography, but there are some ways that it relates to parallels in earlier material too, and especially in the reign of, of his father, who seems to have um, gone farther, farther than a lot of other Egyptian kings in solarizing and divinizing himself while alive. Yeah, you know, the, thinking of... Um, the variety of forms that religious iconography could take within a particular religious tradition broadly defined. I guess this is going back to our earlier conversation topic, but one of the other things I find interesting about looking at household religions that we often see variations on what the themes of more quote-unquote official or public cult are people are doing something a little different in private context and you see that at Amarna where in households I mean like Anna Stevens and others have written about this there are still images of the traditional gods even under Akhenaten's reign so people are still exerting their own agency within their own space to uh, create a different sort of account of the universe Um, and I think you can see that to a certain extent in in the Greek world too, or at least you can see differences between um, the ways that the gods or rituals are portrayed in household contexts versus elsewhere. So Zeus, right? Okay, he appears in certain kinds of household contexts, but sometimes in ways that we really wouldn't expect. Um, So for example, there is this late tech Roman period that that refers to a cult of Zeus Ctesios in the form of a a jar like a a pot a decorated pot and there's a find from the the city of New Halos that might actually correspond to this it's a little vessel a stone pot that was found buried next to a hearth they did actually have a built hearth in that case and it contained little figurines of snakes among other things it's a really um, puzzling object or really assemblage Marguerite Hogsma has explained it as possibly representing Zeus Ctesios and maybe it is you know so think of Zeus uh, with this uh, very anthropomorphic iconography bearded idealized guy but maybe this bizarre looking little buried pot is also Zeus I feel like that that's a very entertaining because I'm just like you know you look at Greek mythology and it's like well what hasn't he turned into <laughs> I mean, just saying it's like at one point he's just like a mist of golden sparkles and then he's, you know, like a a bull in one and then he's like a fly in another and you're just like, okay, pick something, you know, (laughs) so, (laughs) you know, all of them, it's something actionable, I suppose, but um, I would just, I'd be very entertained by he turns himself into an inanimate object that can't do anything. So for one, some like Yes, please. Yeah, at least, at least it would be a little more harmless than some of his other incarnations. Right? I'm like, you know, if he's not an animal, I'm like, okay, well, when he's like the golden mist or whatever, I'm like, well, the mist still can go misting around. But I'm like, if you're a pot, you just like sit there, right? Seems a little less attacky than some of his forms. A little less creepy, for sure. Definitely a little less creepy. So I hope that's him. <laughs> 
I'll, I'll, I'll wait for this evidence. I'll, I'll wait for more people to do studies and then I'll read all of them and say, okay, so was he, was, was he this pot, <laughs> but turning more to, to more into the, uh, what we would like to see in the entertainment space mm. with all of this, because I love, I loved Egypt and I love Greece, but I'm always complaining about how no one ever does justice to them. You know, you don't portray it right. You kind of do what you think mm. might sound good, look good. I just kind of want to know, like, have you found, is there a movie or TV show or play or some form of entertainment uh, accessible to people that, actually portrays like domestic life either in Greece or Egypt, like particularly well, or do they all just suck? Cause it's like, no, that's that's clearly entertainment. That's never how it would go. Oh, that's an interesting question. A show about domestic life. I can think of a lot of shows or movies that focus on the sort of big powers, the families that were at the top of society. And it's a sort of domestic life. I guess you could see I, Claudius, as being about domestic life on some level, but not exactly a very standard one. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of potential for, for something a really good like a TV series to be made. I'm still waiting, by the way, for a really good TV series that focuses on the Ptolemaic dynasty. This would be back to the like top down sort of royal family centric narrative, but man, there would be so much to work with. But you know, one of the things that I would also really like to see change in pop culture representations of antiquity is maybe questioning some of the assumptions that tend to be made about what the ancient world looked like and who populated it. So the classic example here would be the popular representation of Greeks and Romans as white in modern terms. And like, okay, a white identity as such didn't even exist in antiquity, but also the population of people who would have been considered Hellenes or Romans would have had a lot more varied phenotypes than the actors who tend to play them. And in fact, if you look at a lot of big budget Hollywood movies, the Greeks and Romans tend to be played not just by white actors, but actors of specifically Western and Northern European descent. So they don't even look like they come from Greece or Italy. So I'm thinking like Gerard Butler, he's Scottish in 300, or Colin Farrell and Alexander, he's Irish, or like Nikolai Coster Waldau, Jamie Lannister himself, he's Danish as the Egyptian god Horus, God help us, in the movie Gods of Egypt. And not even to mention the actresses who typically get cast to play Cleopatra. And of course, you know, people frequently say, oh, she's Greco-Macedonian. But Shelley Haley has rightly pointed out, we don't know the identity of Cleopatra's mother or grandmother. So if you want to say Cleopatra didn't have any Egyptian ancestry, that's arguing from silence. She very well could have. Then my other biggest pet peeve with portrayals of the Greco-Roman world in movies or TV, everybody has British accents. Do you know the website TV Tropes by any chance? Um, I, yes, okay. actually. Oh my God. But, but, but I haven't checked it in years because <laughs> I think the last time I like went there was, you know, like, I don't know, five, maybe more years ago. I just remember they listed this particular trope as the Queen's Latin, which I thought was a sort of funny kind of phrase. You know, it, it, we've gotten used to hearing these fake British accents in the movies, but it's not a neutral thing. Um, the people who created and maintained the British Empire wanted to imagine that they were the successors to the Roman Empire. So to some level, we're still buying into that idea today. So when somebody puts on this really plummy accent to play Augustus or whoever, they're actually echoing imperialist ideology, whether they know it or not. I remember there's one movie that I thought did something, was trying to do something maybe kind of interesting with this trope, the Oliver Stone Alexander, where a lot of the Greeks sounded British and then the Macedonians were Irish. And I guess they were trying to play on ideas about like cultural divisions between Southern Greeks and Macedonians and the snobbishness with which Southern Greeks looked down on the Macedonians. I've also heard it was kind of a post facto rationalization for the fact that Colin Farrell couldn't drop his Irish accent. So they're like, okay, the hell with it. All the Macedonians are Irish now. Yeah, no, for sure. I because I, I remember reading a thing being like, why are they I and yeah, like I think I literally found some like sketchy internet explanation that was like, Yeah, they wrote them all as Irish because they wanted to show the different dialects. And I'm like, you could cast Greek actors yeah. and then have different dialects, you know. Wouldn't that be refreshing <laughs> if the Greek characters actually had Greek accents in a movie? Uh-huh. Yes, I would, because also anyone who knows me and knows what a Phil Helene I am, I'm like, I personally find the Greek accent to be like the most beautiful accent in 
all of the world it's wonderful so i'm i'm like always more greek accents in my in my media please please you know and it was it was thinking as you were listing through all the tried and true tropes that we continually see the other one that i really that bothers me so much why is egypt always portrayed in ruins like it's never portrayed like in the splendor of the golden it's always just like oh that pyramid's crumbling oh that's old you know and you're like but why yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And Shades of Ozymandias, which uh, I know is a, is a recurring theme on this podcast, but Egypt's always already the antique land. I know. I would, well, even that, that Gods of Egypt movie. Of- <laughs> I mean, I, I would describe that when I saw it as the so horrendously bad that it's good just because it's just entertaining because I just laugh my way through the entire thing because I can't take a minute of it seriously yeah it's it's quite something I mean you know and then there's I suppose like the whole you know like the Elizabeth Taylor yeah I'm like I appreciate the effort that they put into making the sets look gorgeous Mm. and sort of realistic and they do quite well in my opinion until you get to that scene where she gets to Rome and then they take her down that platform with the clearly modern sort of contraption oh, chair no. where she's straight and then just the platform goes down and she stays straight. <laughs> and I'm like, because they obviously could do that back then. So I was like, okay. Sure, Elizabeth Taylor was having fun with it. Are you kidding? I look at half her costumage, her wardrobe, and I'm like, honey, can I have some of that? Like she has this, have you seen, there's this like one internet meme where it's Elizabeth Taylor as she's in like the full regalia with the crown and uh, all the makeup and, and stuff. And then it just says um, like dress for, like the position you want to have or something, <laughs> you know? And you're, And I'm just like, well, okay, I guess I'm going to dress like the queen and maybe I'll be the queen of Egypt. But um <laughs> as you were listing off all the, the wrong examples, I was trying to think what is closest and have you seen the uh, HBO Rome? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a while. But... I feel like that's the closest we get to kind of domestic home situation. Yeah, I think they did good research. I think they did. It's been a long time since I've seen it. So it's not super fresh in my memory, but it, it, felt like they had put a lot of effort into trying to recreate this, the places and the practices. And hey, I remember there was even a magical curse involved. There was, there was, because Servilia, Cer- spoiler alert, if you have not seen it, you, you might want to just pause or skip. But yeah, I remember because Servilia uh, was like having her affair with Caesar. And then I think it was like Atia or whatever, but she like tried to cons- sign her to the netherworld gods like she found out and then she like paid some sketchy people to to draw graffiti and then caesar was so like shamed by it he was just like goodbye i can never see you again and then she gets so (laughs) pissed i remember there's that great scene where she takes her stylus and like gribbles it on and then like folds what looks like pieces of like i don't know aluminum or plastic which clearly did not exist folds it and then she like 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 throws it somewhere and i was like are you cursing him are you cursing all of them? It was so violent. I just remember the language was so violent. I was like, like piss someone off. You're going to get cursed to have like boils on your face and, you know, cursed shall you be. So you never find a husband or something. Oh my God. I just, I just have had an idea for my class. I'm going to get that clip and I'm going to show it when we talk about curses. Yes. It's already been productive for my teaching. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad I could help you. Great. And then the last thing I remembered was that you're right. All the actors in there are like Scottish or British. Um, Cause I was like, the main character is Scottish and he's a redhead. And I was like, well, that's not Mediterranean, but good, good job. We, yeah, you're right. We haven't seen anything that really does justice to like Hellenistic period Egypt. There's, there's a few Greece things out there, but it just doesn't seem to be a very popular period period in, in history to do anything so here's just kind of a, a, a fun question if you were be able to create your own series would what would you create and how would you do it I tempted to go two ways about this but I feel like I should say is oh I would do something that would be a really faithful portrayal of the of like domestic life and subaltern experience and but I'm also really tempted to say 
I would do a mini series about the Ptolemies and their constant internecine warfare with each other and all the dynastic squabbles. I think we're all killing each other. It, it, would, it would be very Game of Thrones-esque. So if, if my goal were to give HBO its new hit show, that's probably the one I would pitch. But what would probably be much more welcome from the point of view of trying to represent what life was actually like for most people would be to maybe follow a regular family. Oh, here's here's an idea. You could do it. You could set it during the Great Revolt, you know, because during the Ptolemaic period, there was this period of time where for uh, about 20 years, uh, the Thebaid and Upper Egypt broke off as an independent kingdom. And it was ruled by these two pharaohs who seem to have been Egyptian rebel leaders. Uh, they ruled Egypt as a, or that part of Egypt rather, as a pharaonic state for this brief period in the middle of what's otherwise Ptolemaic rule, you could follow a family in Thebes as they lived through that. And so that would give you a chance to look at the big historical picture, rebellion against the Ptolemies and Greco-Macedonian rule. But you could also make it really personal and uh, follow uh, people who are not wealthy or famous and look at how they still have agency and choices in their lives. That could be interesting. It could be really interesting. I hope I hope HBO hires you though, because I think I I think I want the Game of Thrones esque just for the sheer entertainment factor. <laughs> Although, would you end it with Cleopatra Seven, or would you just like leave her out of it because she's so overdone? Oh God. Well, I mean, I think if any network were actually producing this. You're not going to be able to pitch it to them without Cleopatra the Seven. <laughs> but maybe you can take it farther. Follow uh, her kids being brought up by Octavia, you know? See how that worked out. <laughs> I was like, ooh, that would be that would be quite fun to see. Okay, all right. Well, you know, maybe, maybe some nice executive will hear this and um, <laughs> decide to hire you for some consulting work. And then... You know, it'd be amazing. We'll have the next Game of Thrones set around the, you know, Ptolemies. It'd be fantastic. So obviously we've covered a lot of the, the popular media. So I'd want to quickly bring us over to like the maybe not as popular, at least in academic circles. But do you feel that like maybe if the way just like TV networks and the movie industry is, if they're not going to do it justice, are video games perhaps a better way of teaching about especially things like the domestic side? Um, because the one example I have in mind is the Assassin's Creed uh, game set in ancient Egypt, because they, I feel like when I was playing it, I saw quite a lot of domestic scenes. You know, you could enter the houses and kind of see domestic scenes playing out. Would that maybe do more justice to it? That's interesting. You know, so I have a confession, which is that I'm not really a gamer. I haven't played Assassin's Creed, although I really should. Like, I should for professional reasons at this point, because all of my students have played it. Also, it sounds really interesting. But tell me more. I'd be interested to hear about that. So you actually get views into domestic life in the game? Yeah. So, I mean, within the, the, so when you're actually like playing the game itself, obviously doing missions or just kind of roaming around the world, you might happen upon them. I mean, you can't like interact with them, but you can kind of walk around in houses. You can see how at least the video game makers envisioned what the inside of a house would look like. So you can see like minute details, like for some of these houses, like the richer ones, you'll see like exquisite tables. And then you'll see all the things on the table, the books and the ancient whatever's that they have on the table in some of the poor houses. Maybe there, there will be people weaving or people, they even had um, 3D recreations of people like doing ancient beer making. And I was like, whoa, wow. it's more than a discovery tour actually, <laughs> that since the tour is supposed to be educational, if you do like the little tours, uh, they'll go. And then each time you kind of like hit a marker, there'll be like a professional voiced uh, blurb that educates you about whatever topic you're going on. There's one about domestic home life about the ancient Egyptian house, beer making food, flora and fauna. Like there's a bunch of really educational stuff in there, but I saw that and I was kind of like, oh, this would be rather fun to teach with. I mean, I'm not an Egyptologist, so I will not be teaching about it, but I was like, other people should take note and teach with this. Oh, well, all right. This is the second teaching idea I've got now. I'm going to be doing a seminar on household archaeology in the fall. I'm going to make a note to myself right now to look up Assassin's Creed for this. Yes, no, because it's amazing. Like, I, I personally think it has everything. And then, you know, when you're doing s s more the Greek side, I mean, okay, I would say Origins is probably better for, like, your own research because the game is set in... 
Hellenistic Egypt because it's set during Cleopatra. Mm -hmm. So it would have more. But I would also say, I mean, if you're looking for Greek stuff, the ancient Greece Assassin's Creed Odyssey, uh, although that one's set during the uh, Peloponnesian War, so a little, little earlier. But um, I, I they also have just great portrayals of kind of like the daily lives of ancient Greeks. And they also have a, a discovery tour that, that you can sort of use for the educational mode. So yeah, there's, there's Greece and there's Egypt. There's something for everyone. So that is really interesting because in archaeology recently, uh, recently meaning the you know, past 10 years or so, recent is a relative term in academia, of course, but there has been much more emphasis placed increasingly on 3D modeling of uh, domestic sites. And you know, this is something that I want to do for the excavation that I'm co-directing at Pompeii. We're excavating in the garden of a house and we plan, we're in the process of building a 3D model of the house from a LIDAR scan. And we're currently working on modeling the plants that been able to identify as having been present in the garden. And that sort of thing is increasingly being recognized as not just, you know, a gimmick, like, oh, it's cool, you can make a model, but, but it's a way of potentially testing different aspects of what you could or couldn't do in the house. Like, how much light would this one area get? How accessible would this space have been from this other space? And so on and so forth. So maybe we should all be working with game designers much more. I mean, that's what I keep trying to educate people, I'm trying to, you know, kind of push toward it. And in, in, the, uh, in the in in some conversations I've had with game developers, I kind of try to push them the other way. Hey, you should work with historians so you can get more cool things that are also very accurate. No, I think one of the my favorite Easter eggs, because I've talked to some game devs who worked on Assassin's Creed Odyssey. And I've talked to some archaeologists who, someone I talked to had a like a, a grad student or a colleague working on something and it was in the game. So one of my favorite examples is um, like in the Athenian, like Agora, basically at that time period, no one really knows what the Stoa Poikile looked like, the painted Stoa. And in the game though, they use this person's research and basically put a 3D version based off of this accurate research. And so when she was like walking around in the game and she saw it, she was just like, oh my God, that's the Stoa Poikila. She's like, that's like, that looks like what my student described or whatever. And I was like, oh my God. So that's my favorite Easter egg. So every time that's fantastic. I'm walking around the game, I'm like, that's the Stoa Poikile based on this person's research. So yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's a great space for, for edu- education to go. I think, especially with this mm-hmm. emphasis on 3D, you know, recreations, I'm like just work with the game devs. Like they, they have the coding skills, they have the, the skills to do all this. So, you know, we could focus on our research and, and sort of uh, not have to learn to code at the same time, unless it's, you know, people enjoy that. But because the, the only other thing I was thinking of was uh, it's pretty rudimentary. But when I was growing up, it was this like I would play The Sims a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I would create Egyptian themed houses and families and stuff. And so I was like, with the with the technology now, I'm like, you could literally create your own like Sims for domestic life in ancient Egypt, quote unquote, and, and use that as well. But that that's probably just more fun than educational because you have to create it yourself. But I just thought that would kind of be fun. That would be, that would be. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of options for sure out there. I hope we've covered all the mediums. I don't think I'm forgetting anything. <laughs> I'm probably forgetting something. You know, I could continue on, on the, the popular section forever. So I'm, I'm trying not to get too caught up on it because you know, <laughs> we will be here for the next five hours, which <laughs> we don't have time for. But sort of at the end of each podcast, I do ask all of my guests if they will read the poem Ozymandias. And then uh, after reading it, you know, this doesn't have to be like the most erudite thing you've ever said in your life, but just, you know, sort of give us your quick takes on, you know, the meaning of the poem and what quick thoughts you have about it. Sounds great. Let me look at the text so I can read it. No problem. (laughs) Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Okay. Ozymandias. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings, Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. It's a fantastic poem. I, I love Ozymandias, like Shelley. Yeah, so I, it's kind of a bleak poem, right? I mean, as an Egyptologist, of course, I can't help but notice some of the ways that the poem reflects 19th century tropes about Egypt. The notion of Egypt as a land of past glories, like we were talking about with modern movies, Egypt is always already in ruins. And there's nobody in the poem who seems to represent a modern Egyptian. It's not really clear who the traveler from an antique land is, but the listener clearly isn't Egyptian. The only person who is identifiably Egyptian in the poem is dead and present only in statue form. And it's Egypt as a place whose image for a 19th century Anglophone audience would have still been filtered largely through Greek and Roman sources. I mean, Shelley's writing in 1818, right? So, Mm -hmm. I mean, Champollion wouldn't have published his decipherment of the hieroglyphic script. So this traveler from an antique land wouldn't have actually been able to read a hieroglyphic inscription on the statue. And Ozymandias is a name from a Greek source, Diodorus Siculus, the Hellenized form of Usur Matre, one of the names of Ramses II. And the inscription in Shelley's poem is taken from Diodorus's account, so maybe we should even understand the traveler as being on some level Diodorus. And okay, it's a period when there's a lot of fascination with actual Egyptian ruins, and indeed the British Museum was acquiring Ozymandias, if indeed that particular statue, they were in the course of acquiring at the time was the one that inspired Shelley. And I guess there's the association of Egypt with monarchy and specifically despotic tyrannical monarchy, which is a trope we can trace back in Greek and Latin literature, at least as early as Herodotus. So, okay, you know, there's one level in which we could say this is a very Orientalist poem in Said's sense of Orientalism. And, and it is. At the same time, I feel like the decay and the tragedy of the poem isn't really supposed to be unique to Egypt. I mean, any of the, the mighty, anybody who has some kind of worldly power, whoever they are, wherever they come from, are being warned they might end up like Ozymandias. In fact, they will end up like Ozymandias. That's the irony of the inscription, right? He's supposed to be telling the mighty that they should despair when they look on his works, presumably because his works are so awesome that nobody could hope to rival them. But in fact, the real reason that the mighty should despair is that those works haven't survived. The statue is broken. And whatever other monuments used to surround it, they've all been swallowed up by the desert. So I guess as I read the poem, the idea is ultimately this is what's coming for all of us, no matter what we do no matter how great it is, it's going to get forgotten eventually. But I don't know, at the same time, I guess the poem represents a sort of act of defiance against the obliteration of all human works. It is itself an attempt to create a work that's going to hopefully last. Poem is longer lasting than an Egyptian monument, at least to me, I hear an echo there of Horace saying that his poems are going to be a monument more lasting than bronze and higher than the pyramids. 
So maybe there's a little bit of room for hope after all, even if none of our human achievements are going to survive, there's still something meaningful or necessary about creating them. And even if Shelley's poem is itself going to be lost to the equivalent of the desert in another couple thousand years, we can still read it right now and he can still talk to us and move us now. So I guess that'd be my take. What does the poem mean to you? I've said it and I will say it again because I love this poem. So I will always happily talk about it. I think it's a political statement by Shelley for sure. I think he's using the the, the ancient world kind of as, as a backdrop for kind of the political situation. But yeah, it's this idea that it's like a memento mori, honestly, reminder of uh, yeah. you, you will die. The, the impermanence, the fleeting nature, the ephemeral nature of political power. But it's also, a, I feel like it's a message that we can't go it alone. Mm. Because the thing is, you know, one of the reasons, you know, why is it that there is the statue and why is it that it's buried in the sand? Why is it that, you know, we don't remember anything? Ramses didn't think that he would be forgotten. He thought that he would sort of preside or at least his monuments would survive for a thousand years, forever, whatever. Ramses himself wasn't making the statue. Like you had to commission these artisans to like build it for you. And so the reason that he thought he was going to be immortal was because he had all these people even if he didn't want to admit it at the time, obviously, obviously not. But like he needed their help because he couldn't do it alone. Because, you know, I suppose he was like, no, I want to be the only one. I'm like, okay, then build build all this shit yourself. And then <laughs> good luck, you know, but it's, yeah. it's like clearly that didn't happen. So, yeah, I think it's this, this, this really interesting statement on mm. he is remembered or the only reason we even have anything to remember him by is because this artisan made something of him to help him stay. Yeah, it's a, it's a subtle message that we need each other. Mm, they're not really his works after all. They're they're not. It's impossible to to fully grasp, you know, what Shelley's trying to say. Because also in the back of my mind, I'm also like, okay, Shelley, what were you smoking? Because also I'm just like, okay, but your <laughs> wife is over here. She basically invented science fiction as a thing. I'm like, I'm like, you're writing, you know, this beautiful poetry, but I'm like, okay, it's short. It's 14 lines, and I'm like, she just wrote Frankenstein. So, you know, there's, there's some <laughs> level of like, all right, what were you doing? But yeah, so that's, you know, that's my take on it. But a question I love asking, though, that follows up the poem beautifully, I think, is if you were to consider our modern society now, is there a modern equivalent? Is there like a modern Ozymandias, something that we think is amazing, that will last forever, that, you know, in, I usually I say a thousand years, but I'm also like, LOL, climate change. We're going to be yeah. lucky if we make it another hundred years. So let's go with like 200 years from now. Are we going to remember mm -hmm. it? And are we going to look back and be like, oh, this was amazing or look at something and be like, what were we thinking? That's a terrible idea. Well, that's a really interesting question. I guess the way I read the poem, everything we do is sort of the equivalent of Ozymandias. I mean, he's obviously being presented as an exceptionally powerful, exceptionally obnoxious guy, and he's more hubristic than most of us in imagining that his triumph would be eternal, but ultimately we all wind up with our works getting swallowed by the desert, so to speak. 200 years, though. Hmm. I mean, like, soon enough in the future that barring some cataclysm a lot should survive so what will have disappeared in 200 years if you want you can go for a thousand i'm just not confident as a human race will make it a thousand yeah well if if we're going to make it then i'm going to say the thing that's going to go that way will be fossil fuels because otherwise we're not getting there that's a good answer i'll i'll go with that one because it's true yeah i know it's looking it's looking pretty bleak isn't it actually that's it's quite depressing but yeah fossil fuels that's solid. The last couple of questions that I have that I love asking are, um, one, when you were either in undergrad or grad school, did you go to office hours? Ha, all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And then two, do you have like a favorite memory or a favorite conversation or just something fun that happened? Sure. Yeah. You know, it's funny you asked that. I, I recently heard that one, one of my undergraduate mentors, um, somebody who meant a lot to me, um, passed away, uh, Professor David Mitten, um, who was one of the kindest people that I've ever met in my entire life. And I went to his office hours a lot because one thing was a fascinating and knowledgeable guy and I wanted to learn from him, but also he was so supportive. He would take the time to, to read things that I had written in great detail and he was always very affirming. He would take the anxiety of like 19 year old kids who were 
terrified that they didn't it certainly applies to me didn't like have the the stuff to be writing a serious research paper and he had a real talent for making everybody feel respected and not in a sort of glib way or whatever he, he meant it it, it came mm -hmm. out of truth he clearly did respect his students he clearly did care about them and that shone through and i remember many times sitting in his office looking around at the shelves and at professor's office so there'd be a lot of books but there were also a lot of mementos photos of him with with past students or with colleagues and friends or other sort of objects that spoke to times in his his life and to me that evoked the human connection of academia and it can be, I think, too easy to forget or undervalue that human connection. Um, I think on some level, the institutions in which we work tend to encourage us to think of ourselves as brains and vats, just like generating knowledge, but we're not. We're people. Scholarship is ultimately communication between people. It's people talking to each other about people who lived in the past. And to me, Professor Mitten, my undergraduate mentor was somebody who most truly embodied the humanness of the humanities. So that's stuck with me always. I mean, he's really been an inspiration to me ever since. And when I think about what sort of teacher or mentor I'd like to be, I always, I'm not going to live up to that model. I'm not going to be able to, but that's the model for which I'm always striving. Well, I wouldn't go so far to say you would never live. I don't know. Maybe you have some students who might feel the same way or, you know, maybe if not currently, maybe in the future, you still got a, a lot of time to be teaching, assuming you want to teach until you're like, you know, I don't know, 80, 70. I, I love hearing stories like that because I did have a wonderful professor at Mizzou. She was a, a bit older and she had like a, a chocolate drawer in her office. Oh, it nice. didn't matter if you were in the department or just taking a class or passing through, but if you were kind of passing and look lost, she would just kind of come out of her office and say, oh, like, are you lost? Are you okay? Do you need anything? Oh, here's, do you want some chocolate on your way out? Oh. Oh, that's lovely. I would go live, live in her office hours. I mean, she would honestly just like leave her office unlocked and I could just stay in there as long as I wanted to. And even if she had to go teach, she'd just be like, all right, well, when you're done, just close the door and you know, it's, it'll lock behind you. But yeah, definitely evokes that, that whole, she was a person, she really wanted to make it personal. Nothing was off limits with her. So I love those stories and I love those mentors and those people. They really yeah. do play an important role in shaping us. You kind of touched on it, but, you know, the, the very, very last question is, um, you know, if you were to make one minute elevator pitch for why you think it's important and why you would encourage students to come to your office hours, what would you say? Well, I think it's important to talk to uh, people within the field outside of the structure of a lecture, you know, one person on a stage and other people taking notes, or even, even a seminar where you have one, a kind of group conversation that can be very exciting. But I think there's a lot to be said from the more sort of spontaneous or freewheeling conversations that can happen one-on-one -on -one in an office hour setting or where students can bring whatever they're interested in to talk to a faculty member or mentor about and get to know each other as people too, because you know, we are people and, and that's community is important. So yeah, I, right now, of course, meetings are more complicated than usual. Uh, the first couple of weeks of the semester here are going to be online only, but even in the weird digital world that we all have to periodically inhabit now, I think there are ways that we can create and maintain those connections. Yeah. Well, the digital door is always open. You just got to, you know, yeah, that's right. work a little harder to, you know, make sure time matches up because, you know, it's a little harder, but yeah, no, I, you know, I think it's <laughs> nice. The digital door is there. So I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so glad we were finally able to connect. I know scheduling is always hard, especially in, in COVID era and with the holidays. So yeah, I'm so happy we can get you back on uh, at some point in the future. Thank you so much. This has been really delightful. And I now have a weekend plan. I'm going to go play Assassin's Creed. So thanks so much for having me on and for the conversation. And it's really great to, at least digitally, meet you. Likewise. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings.